I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. This week we're doing Chapter 15 from Ivan Sanderson's book, Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life, published in 1961. Today's reading is Chapter 15, Some Obnoxious Items, The Physical Evidence for ABSMs. So before we get started, um, I want to mention that we were had meant to have Janae on for Part 2 of her interview last week. But she had some problems with, uh, I think it was powers or storms, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah, they actually had, uh, I think she even said they had a tornado that kind of touched down very nearby where she lives. So, yeah, yeah, so power outages and everything. So she wasn't able to record with us, but we did this weekend, so she will absolutely be the show upcoming this weekend. So having said that, Tom, would you like to have a few words? Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. So we're on Chapter 15, as Will just said. And if you like the show, please let us know. It feeds the algorithm. Uh, Click the like and subscribe button. And if you want to support Creek Devil, you can do so. We've got a link in the description. And that's for YouTube, folks, because this is out on a number of platforms. But um, So having said that, everyone, we're not going to wait any longer. Uh, Stand by, and the story will start momentarily. This reading is from the book Abominable Snowmen, written by Ivan T. Sanderson and published in 1961. This is chapter 15, entitled Some Obnoxious Items. Is it not true that there must be some physical evidence of anything physical? Is there any real evidence for ABSMs, and if so, does it prove anything? You now have before you an overall picture and also some considerable separate details of the statements made by all manner of peoples about ABSMs everywhere. It is an extraordinary galaxy of alleged facts. On the one hand, one could, I suppose, tear each individual one apart and suggest explanations of each of its parts. This is the procedure that both the general public, the newsmen, and the scientists have tried to do. But, as far as I can see, they have always fallen down on at least one, usually several, and often all of the separate aspects of these attempts to say nothing of pure logic. On the other hand, looked at as a whole, all overall suggestions put forward to explain the business as a whole turn out to be equally illogical, often ridiculous, and usually demonstrably impossible. Take, for instance, the perfectly reasonable notion that the whole thing is a hoax. This could well be so in any one place, for hoaxers are devilishly ingenious and conjurers are often really quite unbelievable. But taken in the overall of space and time, that is to say, as from about 500 years ago at the least, and all over most of five continents, the suggestion becomes a little ridiculous, 
If we insist, nonetheless, that the idea be pursued, we have to make the following assumptions. Let us disregard everything except the matter of footprints and foot tracks. These are of four basic types as reported and as copied in Plaster of Paris. The pygmy with pointed heels, the mate type with huge second toe and separated big and second toes, the short, stubby, man-sized Neanderthaler type, and the giant man-like with a double first subdigital pad. However, there are many variations of all three, though most notably of the first and third types, and of these, particularly among the pygmies. These prints have turned up all over the world for, let us be ultra-conservative and say, at least a century. What is more, almost all of them have turned up in the most out-of-the-way places where they were the least likely to be found, ahead of mountaineers who had lost their way, changed their minds, or who were breaking new ground, at the head of new roads, up uninhabited rivers deep in tropical jungles, and so forth. Sometimes they run on for miles. This all being so, and it cannot be denied, if they were made by men for some reason, hoax or otherwise, those men must have been in association worldwide for centuries, have much skill, be reliably secret to a degree simply not known in other walks of life, especially the criminal, and have a brilliant organization and tremendous sums of money behind them. One may perhaps also be permitted to observe that, being, as insisted upon by the skeptics, only human. They must have had an extremely powerful and coercive reason for making these ridiculous things. The notion that such a worldwide organization has existed, completely undetected for a century, seems, we must admit, to smack of the unreal. It is no good trying to explain one mystery by another, even greater one. There is only one force that I can suggest that might foster such practices. This is some religious urge, but I beg to leave this until later, for to discuss it now would be premature, while it would not be fully comprehensible until some other things have been said. Still, and at foot tracks only, we then have to consider their being caused by men or other animals quite fortuitously and not by any specific intent. This is to say that, if made by men, they are due to strange foot deformities or to wearing foot coverings of odd design. Nothing like the form of any of the four basic types of ABSM prints are known to be left by men. There is a recurrent theory that those left in snow are simply man's or animal's tracks which have been enlarged or deformed by melting and regulation. Not by any means have all ABSM tracks been found in snow. Quite the contrary, most of them have been found in muds and other soft soils. Melting cannot occur in mud. Another idea is that the tracks in snow are the results of animals loping along, putting two or more feet exactly into the same place or even, as recently suggested by Hillary, a whole group of animals such as foxes stringing which means all following their leader and jumping exactly into the same spots as that leader. Foxes do string in exceptional cases, and there are some animals that sometimes do place their hind feet almost exactly into the impressions made by their forefeet, especially some bears. However, in neither case can the resultant imprints ever possibly go on for a mile after mile, especially in mud without ever so much as a single apparent toe impression being out of place. 
The very idea is so preposterous as not to even be worthwhile considering. The ABSM tracks just go on and on with each right and left foot constantly and consistently reproducing itself exactly. Still another idea is that the tracks in snow were left by men wearing partially worn out footgear. In this case, however, the wearers must, in the first place, and for centuries to boot and all over tens of thousands of square miles of territory, have possessed that extremely rare abnormality, a longer second than first toe, on both feet, as described above and in detail in Appendix B. Further, the footgear must always have worn out exactly and precisely so that all the toes on both feet were exposed, while the worn edges of the footwear never, ever once left any impression. This also is, of course, so manifestly absurd as not even to warrant further discussion. And so the whole of this wretched business goes. It does not matter which way you turn with regard to the tracks, but that you come up against a manifest absurdity. As to stories, accounts, reports, and such like verbal statements, there is really little we can do. They lack any kind of proof, and they fail to supply any kind of concrete evidence. The most one can do about them is to submit them to a crude statistical analysis to see if they display any pattern. They do, but it really only makes matters worse. Here, you have a mass of illogicalities that appear to have a logical pattern, yet the pattern points to a further illogicality. Stories can only be repeated, while what we need is some concrete evidence, something physical that we can examine, try to analyze, and explain. Are, therefore, foot tracks all that we have of a concrete nature? The answer to this is, of course, and as you must long ago have realized, no. There is, or is alleged to be, much other perfectly good physical evidence. There is also some cognitive and also corollary evidence. All evidence may, in fact, be broken down into six categories under three major heads, to wit, intrinsic, cognate, and corollary. Under the first are actual physical items such as alleged whole mummies of ABSMs, dried heads or skulls and parts, such as hands on the one hand, and bits of skin and hair on the other, and including scalps, a bag said to have been made from a yeti skin, and some whole skins. Of the second category, we have first footprints and tracks, and secondly, excrement. While there are a few allegations of other possibly extraneous items such as beds, lean-tos, and primitive construction in caves. Of the third category, we have three quasi-concrete forms of alleged evidence. First, reputed calls and other sounds. Second, stinks said to have been given off by the creatures. And third, reports of things having been moved by them. These are, of course, almost as inconclusive and elusive as mere reports in the absence of photographs or sound recordings. Finally, under the corollary class, we also have drawings and paintings, carvings and statuaries that are said to depict ABSMs. The variety of all these items is paltry, and the actual numbers of examples of each that we have are really quite fantastically small. But it does seem incredible, at least to me, that this is all that has been produced over the ages for such a large series of alleged existing entities spread almost over 
all the world. I will admit that one hardly ever finds so much as a scrap of any dead wild animal anywhere, but one would have thought that even if no photos had been taken due to the creatures being nocturnal, at least one might have been shot, if only in self-defense. Of course, there are plenty of stories of them having been shot, but no parts ever seem to have been preserved. This is, perhaps, the most suspicious part of the whole affair, plain lack of concrete evidence. Further, most of what has now been produced has been shown either not to be of an ABSM or definitely to be a relic of something else. Let me take these obnoxious items one at a time. Starting with parts of the animals themselves, we actually have nothing but an allegation of a non-existent skeleton from BC. Then, there are reputed to be some complete mummies of ABSMs in several, quote, Tibetan monasteries. A most erudite Tibetan by the name of Shamut Burug Dzun Dahar Zi Lo Bu stated in 1953 to Nepalese officials that he had inspected such corpses in monasteries at Riwoche in the province of Kham and at Saikya on the road between Shigatsi and Kathmandu. Then, a complete dried head of a Meitei is said to have been in the possession of the headman of the village of Chilunka, some 50 miles northeast of Kathmandu, for the past 25 years. Next, there are three mummified hands preserved in sundry of the Nepalese monasteries. These are desiccated skeletons of hands and wrists, with some ligaments and dried flesh attached. One, kept at a place called Makalu, is attached to a forearm. A man says he has a part of a skull of an Oma from California, but he has not yet produced it. This completes the roster, except for a bag alleged to have been made of Yeti skin, and three, or just possibly four, conical caps also allegedly made from their skins. Two whole skins were also produced. This is a pretty paltry showing to begin with, but it actually boils down to practically nothing when critically examined. So let us so examine these items. 1. Neither any complete mummies nor the dried head have actually been seen by anybody other than the respected Tibetan named above. 2. The two skins turned out to be, and without any doubt, first, of a sloth bear, Melursus, i.e. that from Mustang and mentioned above, and second, that of a blue bear, Ursus arctos pruinosus. This was obtained in Bhutan by the 1960 Hillary expedition. 3. The hand and wrist with forearm turned out to be that of a snow leopard, Panthera uncia. 4. The hands and wrists without forearm are either two or three in number. There is a considerable mystery about these. All three have been photographed at Bang Bodse, i.e. Pangbochi, one by several people, the other two only once as far as I have been able to ascertain. All three are displayed among the photographs. These I have numbered figures 2, 4, and 3. The first is the much photographed one. The second was published by Professor Teizo Ogawa of Tokyo University. The third was photographed by I do not know whom. Figure 2 has rather broadly flattened metacarpals. The thumb is complete. The second finger has only the basal phalange. The third finger is complete. The fourth and fifth fingers are missing. 
Figure four has the thumb complete, the second and third fingers complete, the fourth with a small basal piece of the first phalange only, and a complete fifth finger. Figure three has a complete thumb, possibly two joints on the second finger, a complete third finger, and apparently no phalanges at all on the fourth and fifth. With the exception of the photograph by Professor Ogawa, the pictures available are extremely bad, taken from angles that distort the whole and fail to bring out any of the details needed, and they are not so much generally useless as misleading. I have been unable to ascertain who took the only pictures of figure three that I've seen. They are overexposed. However, I have a notion that they are of the underside of figure two being held in bright light by some local helper. The only discrepancy between figures two and three is the possible extra phalange on digit two. Ignoring figure three, therefore, we have two very old mummified and obviously hominid hands. The most notable is figure one, in which the metacarpals do indeed seem to be very wide and flattened. Five, scalps are preserved at places usually written Pangbochi, Namchi Bazaar, and Kumjung. There may be another at Thiangbochi. As of the time of writing, that from Kumjung has been demonstrated by both blood and hair analysis to have been made from the shoulder patch of a hoofed animal of the goat family, known as the Himalayan Ciro, Capricornus sumatrensis thar. Sir Edmund Hillary had one made for him in 1960 from the rump of a fresh Ciro skin that he had shot. The hairs are identical. The hairs from the other two scalps seem to also be from the same animal. 6. The bag-yielded hairs that are again microscopically and in general appearance identical to those of the scalps. Thus, out of the entire roster of alleged bits of ABSMs, we are left with two desiccated hands and wrists, one of which looks human and one of which looks like that of a Neanderthaler, possibly, according to Professor W.C. Osman Hill of London, almost definitely, according to Soviet scientists. Both of these hands are extremely old. Hairs from all of these specimens and from isolated tufts found on rocks, in bushes, on the ground, and associated with piles of excrement have been microscopically examined. They show rather a bewildering array of characters. The identification of hairs is not nearly so easy as the layman might think. Hairs from different parts of the same animal look quite different, and we ourselves have five different kinds on our bodies at all times. Head hair, normal body hair, axillary hair, pubic hair, and some remaining lanugo or fluff like that on newborn babies. Even these look different microscopically at the tops, tips, and basal portions, bottoms. Then, if you will just watch your dog around the year, you will see that he changes his coat twice and that his winter pelt is quite different from that of his summer one. Also, many animals have patches of all kinds of strange and special hairs, like those on the necks of moose, the rumps of some deer, and the quills of porcupines, quite apart from bristles or facial or cranial vibrissae, which is to say whiskers and feelers. Also, almost all mammals are plentifully supplied with all manner of skin glands, and many of these are surrounded by or filled with most extraordinary hairs. One of the four most valuable fixatives for our expensive perfumes comes from the glands, called pods, 
on the insides of the legs of a certain kind of oriental deer. These grow the oddest bristles. Trichology, or the study of hairs, is an enormous subject, as the late Dr. F. Martin Duncan of the London Zoo demonstrated by assembling the largest collection of mammalian hairs in existence during a lifetime, but without anywhere approaching completion. Blood analysis from specimens leached from old and dried skin or flesh samples is even more difficult, but it is, if accomplished at all, considerably more precise. At least you can say what it is not. Serological or blood comparisons have now been made between material obtained from various alleged bits of ABSMs and compared with some primates, i.e. monkeys, man, rabbits, horse, dog, and some others. The results, unfortunately, have proved to be doubly inconclusive. First, in that none have matched, and second, because just the most likely types of known animals with which they should have been compared either have not been used or available. What is most needed in the case of, for instance, the Métay, is a good comparison with the various mammals listed in Appendix D, and above all, with Mongoloid man. As a matter of fact, none have actually been tried against either gorilla, orang, or any macaque monkey. The most obvious choices one would have thought. Even more curiously, none of them have matched with any kind of goat-like animal, the Capridae, although the hairs from the same specimens match those of the Saros exactly. Thus, there is either some deliberate trickery here, or the scalps from which the serological specimens were taken are not Saros, and the hairs only look like those of that animal. This admittedly does present rather a perplexing question. Altogether, therefore, there is really practically nothing of a concrete nature even alleged to have come from or be of any ABSM that we can pin down. Matters are a little better with the next major category of physical evidence. These are the cognate, i.e. the ichnological, which means the study of footprints and tracks, and scatological or excrement. I will leave the former for further discussion, see Appendix B, after dealing with the scatological. Specimens of excrement have been collected from various points in Nepal in the Himalayan area, allegedly from some points in eastern Eurasia, see Russian reports, and from the northern California area. Some specimens of the first and last have been most carefully analyzed in modern veterinary and medical laboratories, and quite a deal of information about both their composition and the parasites in them collected. A lot can be learned about an individual animal from its excrement, as everybody knows from the common medical practice of stool examination. The study, as conducted scientifically, falls into two parts. First, that of the entire individual mass. Second, that of its microscopic composition. Also, cultures are prepared from it so that any contained organisms may be multiplied, examined, and identified. Also, the eggs of worms and other such comparatively large parasites are searched for and identified. All of these processes give us information about the animal that originated the specimen. In the gross form, the feces alleged to be those of ABSMs fall into two very clear-cut types. Those from the Himalaya, which are of large but not excessive man size and are said to come from Meitei and Teima, and those of the Omas from California. 
The only reliable examination of the former made in the field was made by Gerald Russell, who had had many years of such field studies in Africa and the Orient while collecting mammals, reptiles, and amphibians for museums. He reported the form to be generally humanoid and the contents to be, quote, a quantity of pica, ochotona fur, a quantity of pica bones, approximately 20, one feather, probably from a partridge chick, some sections of grass or other vegetable matter, one thorn, one large insect claw, three pica whiskers, end quote. Later, he examined also what appeared to be Te Ima droppings near the river where he had found those creatures to be eating giant frogs. These contained bones of that animal and vegetable and insect remains in about equal proportions. Analyses of other Meite feces have been made and variously reported, but most of these stress the occurrence in them of remains of the little lagomorph, the pica, or whistling hare, Ochotona. Further, Tom Slick was shown piles of the fresh entrails of these little animals on mountain screes where ABSM tracks were found. The locals asserted that the Yetis hunted these little animals in their retreats between the loose stones, crushed them, partly ripped off their skins, tore out their entrails as we might gut a fowl, and then ate the rest raw. The Californian droppings are an altogether different matter, and I express myself this way advisedly. First, the individual piles of droppings are of enormous size, some, as that shown in figures 10 and 11, being, as the ruler indicates, over two feet long. This was not an accumulation, all its parts being obviously of the same age. Porcupines sometimes create toilets that they visit regularly and add to for long periods. Their gross form is, moreover, of two distinct kinds, masses of fair, man-sized feces, and droppings of equal volume, but of positively enormous man-shaped individual feces. Sometimes these latter have a most extraordinary rope-like formation, as if produced by a double bowel with interlocking spiral twists. Other samples have not, however, shown this twisting. This presents one of the most positive bits of evidence for the existence of an ABSM, whatever it may be. Just about the only thing that cannot be manufactured, at least to fool a medical man or a veterinarian, is feces. Then... There is no large mammal in North America that can or does produce such droppings. The only alternatives are large ungulates or the larger carnivores. The droppings of all the former are all pellet-like, from moose to the smallest deer. And the moose, incidentally, is not and never has been found in the Washington, Oregon, California coastal ranges, nor even in the Cascade Sierra Nevada ranges. While that of the larger cats here only possibly the puma, are most distinctive and do not, of course, contain mostly vegetable matter, as these oma feces do. The only remaining animals are the bears. Black bear, Euarctos, are found in that region, and it is just conceivably possible that a few brown or dish-faced bears, Ursus, might still be lingering there. Both these animals are omnivorous, but as may be seen from the photographs, their droppings do not look at all like those of the local alleged ABSMs. There is, however, 
a matter that I urge most strongly should be considered along with these discoveries. It appears that in certain circumstances, human beings may give rise to just such feces as depicted here. I have information on two such eventualities. The first is of Alaskan Eskimos who go on an almost exclusive diet of whale blubber in lean winters. This causes not just chronic constipation, but a major blockage of the lower bowel, which may result in retention for many weeks or months. Then, the family group goes in search of certain willows, the astringent bark of which they strip and eat. This acts as a very violent purgative. As a result of this, they finally manage to eliminate, but not without great pain, splitting of the anus, and a great loss of blood. The sorry process was most graphically described to me in a letter from a U.S. government agent in Alaska. The other example of this medical obscurity that I have on record is that of what are called in China, quote, shinsi babies, end quote. These are single, enormous, extremely solid feces, eliminated by confirmed opium eaters and sometimes by opium smokers, who have gone into prolonged periods of withdrawal due to narcotization, during which evacuation is ignored or actually physically impossible. Resultant feces, when elimination does occur, are said to be, on occasion, as much as two feet long and four inches in diameter. It is just possible that some of the Amerindian peoples of our and Canadian Northwest might have been periodically or occasionally subjected to some influences, odd diet, or narcotic that could cause like phenomenon. Quite a number of feces have now been examined in properly equipped laboratories, and a few proper reports have been issued. However, the findings have not been pursued to their logical conclusions, and there has been a marked lack of any desire to issue positive pronouncements on them. I have seen such reports on OMA samples from Northern California, of alleged Maytays from Nepal, and of the Teima from the lower valleys of that area. The first appear to have been almost exclusively of vegetable matter. The second were of mixed content with pika hairs and bones included. And the third were basically vegetable matter in essence, but included bits of insects. In two cases, one, a set of examinations made in a medical laboratory in Oregon of OMA feces, the other run for Bernard Huvelman's in the Brussels Institute, the eggs of certain parasitic worms were found. In both cases, these were identified as belonging to the group known as Trichocephalidae, and specifically of the genus Trichurus. This family of nematode worms includes the hookworms, there is a species of Trichurus, Vidae, T. trichura, that is found in man. Other species come from a variety of other mammals. The size and proportionate measurements with the length of the eggs of each species are known and are quite distinctive. Those found in Brussels from the Teima feces appear to have conformed with the species that comes from sheep. Those found in the Oma feces were of three kinds. In a report on these, the specialist reporting stated that they could not be identified, however, due to their deterioration. Nonetheless, he got exact measurements of them, and they could quite well have been identified, at least within certain limits. I am constrained to quote from this report. 
Quote, The largest egg is out of the range of human parasite ova, though nematodes with such large eggs have been reported occasionally from various other primates. End quote. From this, the writer concluded that, quote, The specimen of feces is not human, is most probably primate, is most probably from a sheep or other herbivore. End quote. This statement is equivalent to the British Museum's now famous dictum, see chapter 19, that, quote, Now you can see for yourself that this abominable snowman footprint is that of a bear or a monkey. End quote. At this point, I do refuse any longer to remain civil, though I still refrain from publishing the name of the expert who made the statement about the worm eggs. This is the kind of double talk that one has to contend with ad nauseum in ABS Emory. It is wholly unscientific, and it is probably a deliberate evasion of the issue. The really alarming aspect of all this is that not a few samples of alleged ABSM droppings have now been collected and submitted to professional analytical laboratories, but there does not appear to be any record of just what has been submitted to whom, what the latter found, or any proper carry-through of the analyses. There may be perfectly clear and valid evidence lying around in somebody's file showing that these feces were produced by an anthropoid, if not specifically by a pongid or a hominid. If there is, we ought to hear about it, and in print, for the very simple reason that gross excremental masses of the size and nature of those from which the samples were taken could not have been dropped by any known mammals in the areas where they were found. Since this is so, if they contain species of parasitic worms found only in man, anthropoids, or other primates, it can mean only one thing, namely, that such a type of man, anthropoid, or other primate lives where said droppings were collected. Of what we call cognate evidences of ABSMs, other than the scatological and ichnological, which is to be considered later, and see also Appendix B, there are but a few isolated and not well-authenticated items. Among these are, quote, reports or rumors that some Sherpas had found crude stoneworks in areas that they said were inhabited by Maitais on the basis of droppings, animal refuse, and other items that they said they found within them. This in some measure concurs with the lone story from British Columbia by the Amerans of having found what they appeared to indicate they thought was a sort of incubation chamber constructed of crude, piled stonework in a cave. See chapter 3. Apart from this, we have the reports of a few central Eurasians, as given by the Russians, that the Almas dig holes in the ground and cover them with brush. Of corollary evidence, we have really very little also. First, there are reports from many areas, Central and Eastern Eurasia, the Himalayas, Malaya, Sumatra, Mexico, Guatemala, South America, California, and British Columbia, of extremely strange, high-pitched, long-drawn-out gurgling whistles being associated with sightings of ABSMs and at other times when something unseen was heard moving about in the immediate vicinity. To these reports, we may add the weird and unnerving sounds reported by the members of the first American Karakoram expedition in 1938. See the bibliography. I note also that Hillary, even after debunking the Kumjung scalp 
and attempting to explain all the foot tracks in snow by suggesting they were made by foxes, quote, stringing, chose the sounds reported said to be made by yetis as being one of the things that have not been explained. I find this rather odd, as almost anybody can imitate any sound or can make up all kinds of weird calls. Mammals and birds, even insects and reptiles, and especially amphibians, make the most astonishing noises and variety of noises. A small spherical frog, Rhinophrynus dorsalis, known to the Mayas of Yucatan as the, quote, Wamuch, only makes a noise after a sudden rain. But, although the animal is only about two inches long, this may be heard for over two miles. The tiny Demidorfs galago, Galagoides demidovi, a minute primate that can sit in the palm of your hand, lets out screeches that make the whole forest ring for a mile when a lusty man cannot make himself heard shouting at the top of his lungs, even when in sight of the persons whose attention he is trying to attract. Personally, I lay little store by, quote, noises, per se, but I must admit to having been profoundly shaken when the Amerindian couple, the Chapmans, in British Columbia, gave out with exactly the same strange whistling call for their Sasquatch that young Mr. Crew had given for me, and which I recorded on tape, in California, though neither party had ever heard of the other's existence. It is equally strange, too, and it may be equally significant that, as far as I can make out from written descriptions, just the same very queer, very unhuman, and non-animal-like, and invariably described as unearthly, calls have been attributed to ABSMs all over the world. The awful roaring of the Mapinguari, the Didi, and others, I lay no store by at all. All manner of most unlikely animals roar worse than any bull that ever lived in Bashan. Another possible corollary matter is that of the smell, or rather stink, of ABSMs. This has been remarked upon by the Amerinds of both North and South America, Sumatrans, especially by the rubber trappers on the Malayan estates, and by Himalayans, Tibetans, and Mongolians. In fact, an overpowering animal stink is an almost regular attribute of close proximity to an alleged ABSM. This is a rather odd fact, but it makes some sense if these creatures really exist and are sub-hominids. One of the most terrible ordeals to have to undergo is to live with the nice little pygmies of the Ituri forest of the Congo Ueli. They give off a smell that amounts to an overpowering stench and which is, to us, absolutely nauseating. After many years of collecting wild animals and living with them, both in their native haunts and in captivity, I can tell quite a number of them down even to the species and blindfolded simply by passing by their cage and sniffing. The greatest stinkers, it has always seemed to me, are the primates, and the larger ones in particular. I don't really mind it, but the smell of a large manga bay is to me sensational, and I can tell before I enter a monkey house if they have a specimen of that genus housed there. Whatever we may say about stinks has little meaning until somebody devises some method of bottling a smell and testing it against that of other living creatures. This is such an abstruse idea that it need no longer concern us 
and we may simply put the whole matter back into the same class as that of mere reports. I believe that the few other similar facts that have been offered as evidence of ABSMs may be likewise treated. These amount to little in any case. First, there was a cairn raised by climbers on the top of a sacred mountain in the Himalayas that was destroyed. Then, some boulders came down upon travelers at various places such as British Columbia, the Himalayas, and Manchuria. These could well have been set rolling by fleeing animals, by small vibrations set up by the travelers themselves, or by their conversation, especially where rocks are split at night by frost and maybe teetering on the brink, waiting for only the slightest imbalance to set them rolling. In California, we have the reports of large oil drums having been actually toted across a road, thrown or rolled down slopes, and of sections of culvert and other large objects like the wheel of a tractor crawler being moved. But these two are simply reports. We have no physical evidence, even in the form of photos of said objects before and after displacement. They are worthless as evidence of anything. This leaves us, apart from the ever-recurrent tracks, with only depictions. What we need here is just one still photograph, however hazy. But we do not have even that. It is true that, however keen and agile a photographer may be, it is only a few times in a lifetime that he is at the right place, fully attending with the right camera, film, lens, exposure, light, and everything else, and all pointing the right way at the right time to get a really worthwhile news shot. It does happen, but it is solely by luck. You could travel the Himalayas for two lifetimes with the best cameras ever invented at the ready and never even see an ABSM. And if you did, you still might be too scared, excited, or overcome even, to push the necessary button. Bird photography is bad enough, but there you have either the nest or a feeding station to set the stage for you. Big game you can drive into in a jeep, and other rarer animals you can stalk, but the results you get diminish by some kind of geometrical recession compared to the rarity of the object sought. To get a film strip of an ABSM is really asking too much, and more especially since most, if not all of them, are alleged to be nocturnal. To this end, tripwires attached to infrared cameras and snooper scopes have been advocated and tried. So far, nothing has been obtained from either, except some excellent shots of startled deer and bears, though the wires have been tripped, broken, stepped over, and apparently crawled under, and even, on one occasion, the camera was broken. While on another, and get this, it was opened, the film removed, and the camera itself replaced. That was no ABSM, unless our whole idea of human evolution is completely haywire. All of this latter took place in California. And these are not the only suspicious happenings in ABSMery in that area. The only things visual that we are offered of ABSMs are a few very clear and precise drawings in old Eastern Eurasian manuscripts, as we have related in the last chapter, some alleged paintings in monasteries in Nepal and Tibet, of which, I may say, I have never seen any photograph or reproduction, some sketches made under the direction of persons who have said that they have seen an ABSM, and a number of artists' conceptions, 
These seem to me to be as values directly proportionate in diminishing degree according to the order listed. The ancient Mongolian texts really do show something, and being from very precise treatises on specific subjects, medical, and showing a large number of known animals most accurately and distinctly, they do seem to be worthwhile of serious consideration. Monastic wall paintings might be fine if we could only have a look at them. Sketches made for those who allegedly have seen something don't say much, though it has to be borne in mind that police artists can, by questioning witnesses, finally produce drawings of wanted persons so accurate that they are immediately identifiable. Mere artists' conceptions I lay very little store by, except those made by artists who are also zoologists, anatomists, and anthropologists, and such are few and far between indeed. Some of the grotesqueries produced in the name of science, and especially of paleoanthropology and primatology, are simply fantastic. A lot of mere animal art is just as absurd like Audubon's mammals, which he twisted into all manner of impossible poses or stances in order to get them onto a piece of paper. Some of the ape-men, cavemen, and our ancestors that have been published in serious works are an affront, and some of those that have appeared in higher class magazines are absolutely laughable. You may remember one large series in color of some Stone Age people allegedly going about their daily lives, which appeared a few years ago. In these elegant paintings, all the men looked like ads for male muscle building, and most were clean-shaven and obviously of absolutely 100% pure Anglo-Saxon stock, while the women had figures like Hollywood starlets, but without certain mechanical aids and long wavy hair. Their caves were swept clean. There was not so much as a scrap of bone in sight, and the firewood was all neatly sawn into handleable lengths. In one, there was even a herd of grade-A, Jersey-type domestic cattle in the offing. And so, we are left only with the matter of tracks. And about these, I have few words to say at this point. First, ignology, or the study of tracks of all kinds forms a science of its own, with a sound methodology and a very high degree of competence. It is divided into three major divisions. One, that of animals. Two, that of people. And three, police work generally, or that of everything that can leave a track. There is a strange thing about ABSM enthusiasts of both schools, pro and con, and this is that they simply do not seem ever to have realized that the most detailed studies have been made of all manner of man and animal tracks, and that photographs of many and detailed scale drawings of most have been published and are readily available. It seems also that the skeptics have not ever really looked at the published photographs of ABSM tracks or of the extant plaster casts of them. Had they done so, an enormous amount of verbiage and published mileage would automatically have been eliminated. As an example, People are still suggesting that Mayte tracks are made by bears. Bernard Huvelman's book, On the Track of Unknown Animals, has been available in English since 1958, and in it he shows, in the simplest of terms, the difference between bear tracks and hominid tracks, and how one may invariably be distinguished from the other. There is nothing difficult about this. It is, in fact, so simple that one would have thought that even the skeptics would have spotted it. 
Simply stated, bears walk with their toes turned in and have their outer toe the biggest, whereas hominids walk either straight ahead or with their feet turned a bit outward, and they have their first or inner toes the biggest. The tracks of all bears in almost all other Himalayan, Tibetan, North and South American, and most other mammals are now known and on record. At the same time, the police forces of the whole world have for over a century been studying intensively all manner of tracks left by everything that moves, and especially of people. If you only knew how much they can deduce from a single heel imprint, you would think a few more times before breaking and entering even your own home when you have forgotten your keys. Then again, as Chernesky has shown, criminologists have made a special study of human feet and come up with some extremely odd ones, such as those illustrating his paper, see bibliography. Engineers, and especially road engineers, can work out to the last pound the weight of anything that leaves an imprint on any kind of soil or other compressible surface. Thus, with a large enough set of scale drawings of animal imprints and tracks before you on the one side, of human footprints on the other, and some proper ones of ABSMs in the middle, you don't have to wade through all of that tripe that has been written upon this matter. All you have to do is take a good look. The more technical details I have assembled in Appendix B. There are displayed the prints allegedly left by the various ABSMs, each duly tagged, and following these, you will find those of all the animals that have been brought up in this discussion, with the exception of some absolute absurdities like the one-legged giant birds, and so forth. Then there are the human feet and imprints from normal babies to grown giants, dwarfs, midgets, and abnormalities. Alongside these are those of the pongids or apes. It has been said that one picture is worth a thousand words. These, I think, are worth a volume apiece. In fact, without going into a lot of detail, technical or otherwise, it is quite plain that none of the ABSMs are either those of any known animal or any known type of human being. It but remains for me at this point, therefore, to draw your attention to a few salient and outstanding facts about these ABSM prints. The thing to observe in the Sasquatch Oma Sisamite Mapangari type is that it apparently walks straight ahead with its feet turning neither inward nor outward. Therefore, it must bend or flex between the foot the metacarpals, and the toes, digits, along a line at right angles to the line of travel. This gives us a point of reference to begin our study, if this is so. What at first looks like the, quote, ball of the foot is really a subsidiary pad at the base of the big toe that, in all hominids, unlike the other toes, has only two joints. The real ball of the foot is behind this, so that it is, despite its enormous size, really very short and broad. It has, in this example, what is called an index of only 1.61, i.e., the number of times the width goes into the length. Further, the big toe is enormous. Then again, it will be noted from the photograph of the same print that there is a very pronounced and sharp ridge of clay running right across under the angle formed by the toes as they curve downward to obtain purchase. This is an invariable feature of the Oma prints. Now, 
Even with our kind of short toes, mud would squeeze up between them in leaving a print of this nature. With these very long toes, it should leave an imprint like that of a long-toed monkey. As it does not, something must have stopped it and piled it up. This can only be a webbing that runs up to the base of the terminal joints on all the toes. The mate or classic abominable snowman prints of the Himalayas, at first sight look just about man-sized, but when you handle a plaster cast of one, you get a profound shock. The thing is positively enormous, and in some respects rivals the Oma prints, which, though longer, look almost delicate, and which are certainly in comparison most refined. These things, as may be seen from the depiction of an impression of one alongside that of an ordinary human footprint, are grotesque and bestial. They also show features that, though not at all ape-like, in fact, digress from the human pattern most widely. They have an enormous big toe, but they also have an even more enormous second toe, and both are widely separated from the other three little toes, and they curl curiously inward toward them. This thing is not human at all. The Ksai Geek Almas of Eurasia are notable for the size of their great toes and also for that of their little toes, both of which are wide. The whole foot, moreover, is very short and broad and splays out in front. Otherwise, it is human enough. I would just ask you to look at the outline of an imprint left by Neanderthal man in the cave of Torreno in Italy. I do not think that I need to say any more on this score, except to remind of the Russian scientist's identification of one of the mummified hands. The pygmy type, a gogwe, sadapa, teima, show a rather wider variety of form, but most display the peculiarity of the pointed heel combined with small size, compactness, and more or less equality of toe length. This is the easiest print to fake, and it is the nearest to some animals, but it has its oddities. Actually, I do not think we have enough accurate tracings or photos of them to assess, and the only plaster casts that seem to have survived are not worthwhile. The best proved to be those of Malayan sunbears, Whatever is making the so-called ABSM prints thus comes in at least four forms. Moreover, these four forms have persisted for centuries. If this is all the work of a secret society, it has four national chapters, but each of these would appear to be allowed to operate in the territory of others. For often, three types will appear in one area, in several there are two. The method of indentation of the prints also is most ingenious. For it has been estimated by road engineers that some in North America, which had no impact ridge around them, as they would have if they had been stamped into the ground, but had distinct pressure cracks all around them, which can be caused only by a steady push downward, have been calculated to have needed a minimum of 800 pounds each to be made. Also, if a device is used, it must stride along, not roll for it can surmount inclines that no man can, can step over things, go around things, alter its stride on either side or both sides, pivot, flex, dig in with its toes going up and its heels going down, 
and do a lot of other things that no machine built could do unless it stood about 50 feet tall and was so loaded with gadgetry that it would weigh tons. Yet whatever does make the big feet can go under an eight-foot tangle of branches without doing more than break off the dead little twigs. Thus, of actual physical evidence for the ABSMs, we have possibly one or two desiccated human-looking hands, a few piles of excrement, and now some hundreds of miles in the aggregate of tracks. We are right back where we started, with lots of reports, but practically no facts. Is there anything else or anywhere else that we can try for information? There is. Two leads seem promising. Let us turn to these and see what we can unearth. This concludes Chapter 15. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.